morning, I'm going to be reading from Mark 2, uh, 1 through 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by the four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law uh, were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I'll tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. Nice to see everyone today. Um, all right, so let me start by telling you about a gentleman named Stan Telkin, if I'm saying his name correctly. Um, he's written a book a little while ago, frankly. It's, it's a bit of an aged book. It was written in 1981, and I confess I haven't read all of it. I read an excerpt this week. Um, and, and here's what his excerpt is about. Stan and his family were devout Jews. He was an American businessman, and they were Jews, which is fine. Um, but when, he was, when his daughter was 21 years old, his daughter called to say, I've become a Christian. Or, as quoted in his book, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. She wasn't necessarily renouncing her Jewish faith. In fact, as far as I'm aware, based on what I know about Stan now, um, she wasn't putting aside her Jewish faith as much as she was saying that, you know, everything that our Jewish faith points toward, a Messiah, I believe that Messiah, is Jesus. What I find interesting about his book, I haven't told you the title of his book, it's Betrayed. Uh, uh, the story ends happily. Stan also eventually comes to Jesus. In fact, his entire family does, and he was a pastor of a, um, I guess you'd call it messianic Jewish congregation, Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. But when his daughter called home and said, I believe Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, this visceral, emotional reaction of Rail is what hit his heart. Again, he worked through it and eventually came to put in his faith in Jesus Christ as well. But it's interesting that while for his daughter, Jesus was putting everything into place for her. Her world was clicking into place. But for him, Jesus made it feel like his world was falling apart. Jesus is that sort of um, crisis figure, isn't he? And, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. Jesus causes us to have really strong reactions 
if he is who he says he is as we interact with that truth, right? Our scripture passage today uh, highlights for us for the first time in Mark, and, and I'm gonna, we're returning to Mark, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that in a minute, but for the first time in Mark, we see that there's more than one way to respond to Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, people respond really well. And then in Mark chapter 2, we see there's another way to respond that is basically equally as fervent, but in the completely opposite direction. So, Uh, With that said, let me go ahead and remind us what it is we've been doing and why it in in the world we are sort of slow walking through the Gospel of Mark. I'm not sure how many sermons I've preached so far, maybe eight, and we only made it through chapter one. So like, this is going to take a while. Don't worry, we'll take breaks. There are things like Advent that we'll celebrate, or we did celebrate, Lent. Okay, we'll mix it up a little. But we are picking up where we left off right before Advent in the fall. And now we're to Mark chapter 2. If you'll remember, since it's been so long, I want to refresh us a little bit. Uh, If you'll remember... We started slow walking through Mark uh, after a retreat that I went to in Yellowstone. And, and the observation that um, was shared with me that really did capture my attention, that so often as Christians, we can forget and leave Jesus behind. In our, in our busyness, in our day-to-day, in our desire to do something good, we might leave Jesus behind metaphorically in the temple, like Mary and Joseph did, right? And that in order to be faithful Christians, we have to be consistently, and this is a job that we all have, it is, it is the lifetime work of any disciple, as they're doing their best to live out their faith, to hold up what they think and they believe and how they act and look at it through the lens of Jesus. None of us are perfect. But we are on the journey, right? On the road. And if there is anyone who is authority for our faith as Christians, it's Jesus Christ. So what better way to figure out who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what he has to say than to read about him, right? Which is why we are slowly and carefully reading about the person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. So like I said, uh, in chapter 1, things are going well for Jesus. In chapter 2, they keep going well with some And they start very clearly going poorly with another undercurrent. Pretty much all of chapter 2 begins to reveal this tension, which will highlight, or excuse me, um, be consistent with or be highlighted throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry. Now, again, because it's been six weeks, forgive me for this. I I had planned to summarize for you Mark 1, but that felt a little bit beside the point. Since, again, we're trying to get into Scripture, So, rather than having me tell you what Mark 1 says, how about I read it? How does that sound? Yay! All right. So, I've looked it up in your pew Bible, page 9990. Feel free to turn there. Or if you've brought your Bibles with you, Mark chapter 1. 
And before we get, because it's been a long time, before we get to this morning's scripture passage, let us be reminded of everything that has gone before. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him, meaning Jesus, into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath was over, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Now news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on him. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right? So this is what has happened so far in the story, the gospel of Mark. When we begin chapter 2, it says a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum. So a lot happens in a very short period of time. So here's what we just read. We read that when Jesus was in Capernaum, he went to the synagogue, and this is where he cast out the demon. Um, he went to James and John's house, and excuse me, with James and John to Simon and Andrew's house. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law. And like he's this huge success. And, and the disciples are like, they're, they want an encore. They're clapping for you. Let's head on back. And Jesus says, I got other people to talk to. So he goes and he preaches in other communities. Now he's come back to Capernaum, where last we knew he was a superstar. Okay? This is important for us to know. The people know about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 1, his reputation precedes him, if you will. And so when he comes back, quote-unquote, home, and he is preaching the word, it says they gathered in such large numbers there was no room left, not even outside the door. And you have to assume they've come expecting more dramatic, climactic miracles. So much so that for the first time, and I'm not saying that there weren't scribes who came to see and hear Jesus before, but this is the first time they're mentioned as being part of the crowd. All right, there's probably been so much chatter in this interim time while Jesus was out communicating and preaching to other cities that now the scribes, who are, incidentally, experts in Scripture, that's what they do. They are experts in the Word of God. They've come to check this Jesus out. So Jesus is there preaching the word, we're told, all right? What that word is exactly, again, all we know so far in Mark is what we're told in chapter 1. This was the word Jesus preached. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this is what Jesus is preaching, 
And as Miss Jamie has already summarized and you heard in the scripture passage, there is such an extraordinary crowd that these men who have a friend who isn't doing so well. And again, the word is spread. So no doubt they want to see Jesus do for the paralytic what he did for Simon Peter's mother-in-law and what he did for the demon-possessed man. They literally dig through the roof. It was like a thatch roof. You can like pull the, you know, palms off in the dirt. Vandalism, basically, right? Vandalism for Jesus. They dig through the roof and they lower their friend because they're just that desperate and apparently he's just that sick. We don't know anything, really, about his storyline, if he's been crippled since birth. We, we don't know. But we know that it's obviously desperate. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And that they come with extraordinary expectation to this moment. In verse 5, after this significant property damage, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe I'm parsing too much out of this, but it doesn't say when he saw their actions. It says when he saw their faith that he is somehow able to see through the what to the why. In fact, he's about ready to see the contents of the scribes' hearts as well. Jesus has this ability to see what's actually happening inside of people, not just the screen that they portray. And in these men, he sees faith. In the scribes, very immediately, because in the middle of this miracle, he calls out the scribes. In the scribes, he sees condemnation, criticism, anger. So to those who have faith, he says to the paralyzed man, sons, your sins are forgiven. To the scribes, with proverbial x-ray vision, seeing what they have to say, he says, um, why are you thinking these things? What is it the scribes are thinking? Verse 6 tells us some of the teachers of the law, this is experts, scribes, again, your translation may do it a little differently. They say, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And again, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. And he's critical of the critics. Which is easier, he says, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. And so to prove to the scribes, that he has the ability to forgive, which is invisible, right? Forgiveness is invisible. He completes the very visible miracle of healing the paralytic. And so right here is where I want us to camp just for a little bit in the time that we have left. One might give the scribes a pass 
except for that we know what's coming because we have the rest of Mark 2 to read. In the next, like, four different vignettes, we see the scribes getting more and more confrontational, haughty, angry. Uh, They question not just his ability to forgive. They want to know why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners, why he doesn't fast, why he doesn't break the Sabbath, so much so that by chapter 3, verse 6, they are literally plotting his assassination. But the moment it begins is here. Why? Why would people who had devoted their lives to the study of the Word of God be so terribly threatened when they saw the Word of God become flesh? I mean, isn't this the thing that they've been waiting for? What was it they had to lose? Mark 1, and again, this is why I always emphasize context, because sometimes the answers to our questions are elsewhere in Scripture. One of the things Mark 1 tells us, in terms of the people's response to Jesus, it says the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So it's possible the scribes were threatened because the people were more impressed by Jesus than they were by him. I don't know that I think this fully gets at it. And we can only sort of poke around. The scripture only tells us so much, but what we know about human nature and our own experiences, we just have to look at the miracle itself. What got them so agitated? And the miracle itself was really pretty basic. A man was forgiven, and he was healed. I can see why they wanted to, like, you know, have their pitchforks ready, right? A man was forgiven, and he was made whole, which ought to have been what they were looking for. Again, as experts in the scripture. But somehow, despite this, we continue to see in this chapter and in future, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and even the disciples of John the Baptist appear unable to discern what the will of God really is. For all of their learning, when confronted with Jesus, they're threatened by him instead of welcoming him with open arms. And so what does that have to do with us? Well, this is without a doubt, uh, Stacy's making a right turn or a pivot or whatever, without a doubt, this is Stacy now pontificating my best thoughts based on scripture. But I, again, this brings me back to why it is we're studying Mark in the first place, is that I just believe we really have to hold things up to Jesus. Um, So when I was in Nashville, this is a bit of a rabbit chase, but I'll bring us back. Um, I I pulled what I would call a Stacy, and I definitely interrupted someone at a restaurant and asked to take my picture with him. It was not a country music star. 
Any ideas what a nerdy Christian like me might want to do? Take a picture with a denominational leader. Yes, I am that cool, okay? We were in Nashville, the head of Baptist Life, and there was a denominational leader there who, you know, we've been in a lot of conversations here recently about denominational stuff that we've talked about, and you can ask me later, and I'll be sure to tell you who he is, but I just, Luke will tell you, I got so nervous, and I wanted to take my picture with him because I admired his commitment to following Jesus. I was nervous to introduce myself because when I said, hi, my name is Stacy, and it's hard to miss, I'm a female, and I'm a pastor, I knew we wouldn't like that. So we don't have all the things in common. But he's a man I've watched over the past several years maintain an integrity that we don't always see. There have been been lots of things for which he's been criticized. Uh, One of which to me is the most mind-boggling is his advocacy for the victims of sexual abuse. Why would that be? Why would Christians throw stones at you for that, right? And so he's, he's just, even though he and I don't agree on all the things, he has kept the faith and made obedience to Jesus central, even when, and I'm, again, this is Stacy's metaphor, the scribes around him just got themselves all in a flurry. He wasn't protecting the institution. He was protecting the victims. And the people in the institution, they don't like that, right? So I had my picture made with him, which is nerdy. A week ago, I found him on a list. How much time do I have to pontificate? I found him on a list. I don't even know where I found this. I was looking for something else for the sermon, and I see this headline on the sidebar, Worst Christian of 2021. And I thought to myself, why does that headline exist? That headline should not exist. And I click on it. My denominational leader is right there. As well as a a Bible study leader that I know many of you all happen to love. Here's what this... um, Here was the opening of this article, Worst Christian of 2021. On the surface, this is a direct quote. This seems like a foolish or even pharisaical question. I'm like, yep, okay, I'm with you there. The fact of the matter is that there are none more worthy, none worthy to stand righteous before God except his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer struggles with sin every day and will continue to do so until the Lord returns and raises us anew in glory. None of us are really better than another, yet we can still fairly ask and answer, who is the worst Christian of 2021? What? Did you hear the record scratch? He just named all the things that were true about Jesus and then pivoted and did the exact opposite in his name. Right? Because he, and this isn't about him. I'm intentionally not, I mean, you're, you can Google it if you want to make sure I'm not making it up. I'm not interested in dragging him as an individual. But I guess I would say, what is up with that? Again, what has brought us to this whole series is how do we embody the antithesis of Jesus in his name? And how do we avoid that? 
The only way I know to do it is to keep going back to Jesus. Now, understanding and discerning are, again, works of a lifetime. And in the same way, you shouldn't listen to any other human and accept his or her best understanding of Jesus. You shouldn't listen to me and accept my best understanding of Jesus. But it is the journey we should be on together, right? Together, we study the scriptures and we listen to Jesus and not the scribes. I think this is probably, I have to guess this is a task for every generation. The issues are just different every time. But it is the work of people who follow Jesus to follow him and not let anything else, I guess, um, become prime or primary. All of that to say, here's what we see from Jesus. And this is just a suggestion for how we might go about discerning, which is work, and no one human, including me, possesses all of the truth. Jesus' ministry leads to repentance. In fact, his language is repent, and that means reorientation, turn to Jesus. That's the whole basis of this scripture, uh, this, this series, right? Is that you reorient around Jesus. And it also results in people who become more fully alive in the way that God intends. What we see among the scribes is an inability to forgive, an inability to heal, and finally a lack of compassion for those who are suffering. Maybe that's a place to start. As we try to determine what does it mean to truly follow Jesus, let's take it just a moment to look at healing and forgiveness and redemption. Does that bring our hearts joy or does it make us mad? Again, it's the work of a lifetime. But the question is, when Jesus is Jesus, because Jesus will do whatever Jesus wants to do, who or what will we see? Our savior or a threat? All right, let's go to God in prayer. God, I do ask that you help me and all of us to see you more clearly. That has very much been my prayer, and it is not always black and white or either or, but we do have your Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth. And so, God, I ask us, uh, excuse me, ask you to guide us in your truth as we, um, in fear and trembling, seeing in a mirror darkly, again, our minds are not your minds. Your ways are beyond our ways. And, and so this is an imperfect walk that we walk together. 
But Lord, we pray, God, that, that you would help us to be people who first and foremost seek Jesus. May that be the guide, the ruler, the standard for our faith as together we work out that faith in fear and trembling and in the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.